Let's pray together. Lord, I think as we now come to a time when we would hear from You, we have spent much of this time listening to Your Word. We've spent much of this time singing praise to You, and that is good and profitable. And we trust that You heard our praise, and we trust that You received it and smiled upon us. And now, O Lord, as You speak through me, through the pages of Your Word, I pray that You would not only give us mouths that You have to sing, but You would give us ears as well to hear of Your Word. Lord, I pray especially for myself with the burden of this message. I come each week, Lord, with a burden to communicate with these people. And would pray that all of us, Lord, would embrace Your truth and love it and pursue after it and follow it because it leads us to Jesus who alone can accomplish our redemption. So now, Lord, I pray that You would empower me, help me, come. Holy Spirit, Lord, we long for You to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been in a a topical sermon series on the church. And my aim has really been to remind you afresh of what the church of Jesus Christ really is. I've attempted to instill within you a love for the church because you know the church and desire to see the the church built through service to the church. I've attempted to show you how much God loves the church. He died to purchase it. Complete self-sacrifice, Jesus Christ I've attempted to show you how much God communicates through the church, that it's bigger than just us. Even there's an angelic realm watching upon us, over us today, marveling at the grace that God would bring us all together to worship Him. I've attempted to show you God's goal for the church. The the goal is maturity, a complete man, a whole man, a new man, which comes through service. And my sermon titles have reflected this. Do you love the church? Do you know the church? Do you serve the church? And this week it's similar. Do you unify the church? Now, it's difficult about this title because the church is unified. So, we might say, do you preserve the unity of the church? But that's kind of difficult to put in there. And so, I just put there, do you unify the church? Because we can, every single one of us, each of us can disrupt the unity of the church. So, with that, my heart says, do you unify the church? I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first three verses of this chapter. And as you're turning there, perhaps even you've realized that every single sermon that I've preached has been loosely based here in Ephesians. Do you love the church? Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Do you know the church? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Do you serve the church? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. And this morning is no different. Do you unify the church? Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. You know, and it's no accident that each of my sermons this past month have been based in Ephesians because Ephesians is a book that's all about the church. I read some commentators. They sought to to sum up the message of Ephesians or the purpose in writing. And one commentator, William Hendrickson, said that The purpose of Paul in writing Ephesians was to picture God's glorious, redemptive grace toward the church. 
God's grace toward and in the church. Another commentator wrote that Paul focuses attention upon God's overall design for His church and for His world. What's the overall design? It's right here in Ephesians. In fact, I remember listening to a series of sermons from a pastor whose church was going through the middle of a building program. And he said, thought about the dynamics of the things that would take place in the body of a church when bricks and mortar were going up on the left over here. He said, you know, I need to really cause my people to understand what the church is so that it might not be just bricks and mortar. But the church might be seen as different than that, as what it really is, God's program in this world. And so he preached through Ephesians during a building program because of its centrality and focus upon the church. And particularly here in Ephesians, one of the grand themes that arise in the book of Ephesians is this theme of unity. I'm going to pick that part for you a little bit today and it comes best I can tell here in verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, God values unity in the church. Shortly before His crucifixion, Jesus prayed several times for the unity of those who come to believe in Him. He prayed in John 17:21. He prayed, O Father, that they may all be one. He prayed in John 17, verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. So God values the unity of the church. And you know what? When the church is unified, it becomes a blessing to all of us. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Unity is something that God wants and unity is something that we are blessed with when it exists. My first point this morning, unity requires a worthy walk. You see there in verse 1 that Paul speaks about encouraging and entreating and commanding the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. In other words, what Paul is saying is that our lives ought to match what God has called us to be and to do. It compels us to look back in Ephesians, to look back to see how it is that Paul describes our calling. And that's what the word therefore calls us to do as well. It's a word of conclusion, which might conclude just a few verses before, or in this case, all of Ephesians 1 through 3 comes a great conclusion here in chapter 4, verse 1. And so, you can turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. We need to review this a little bit to see our calling begins in chapter 1, verse 3. We're told that God is to be blessed because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Is there a blessing in heaven to give to you, believer in Christ? You've received it. Is there something that God may do for you that would be a blessing to you? God has already done it. And let's look at these blessings. Verses 4 through 14 describe them. They describe Paul even goes, what I might say here, he goes on a rampage. He just continues to go on and on and on to describe our wondrous salvation, right? It was initiated in heaven long ago. If you're in Christ this morning, know that before the world was ever created, 
God chose you to be one of His children, right? That's what it says in verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It means our salvation is the grace of God. It's He that determined it long before even we came into being. That's the point of verse 5 even. It says that God predestined us to adoption. It means our salvation is the grace of God. He had His hand in it. He predestined it. He caused it to take place. And if that's your view of salvation, you need to say this. That is all to the praise of God's grace. And that's what the point of verse 6 is, right? To the praise of the glory of His grace. We are saved because of Him and not because of anything in us. And the blessings continue. Verse 7. We have redemption through His blood. That is the forgiveness of our trespasses. It means all our sins are wiped away. They're washed away. And we go free. No longer do we face the wrath of God. Do you have any idea how great a blessing that is? We don't have to walk with this dark cloud over us of condemnation. It's been wiped away. And we stand clean and pure and blameless before God. At the end of verse 7, we read that God has done this according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. The picture here is even a forgiveness. It's just it's grace lavished upon us. It it comes and it and it it grows and it it flows. The picture here is like a stream, a spring that sprouts up, and the water keeps coming and coming and coming and coming, and you can't stop the water. It's going to keep coming. It's the blessings, the grace that God has lavished upon us. He's made known to us some things in verse nine: the mystery of His will. He's told us of the plan of grace in our lives. He told us of His plan to work itself out in the church. comes in verse 10, right? The summing up of all things in Christ, right? The bringing of all things to conclusion. Entire, the entire history of the world is headed someplace. It's headed toward a completely unified, finished, perfect gathering of all things in Christ. It's where it's headed. The redeemed in Christ someday will be perfect, never sinning again, consumed in worshiping the Lamb of God, marveling at the beauty of the new creation where there are streets of gold and gates of pearl, and God Himself gives light to the entire city. That's where it's headed, the summing up of all things in Christ. And the blessings keep coming. We've obtained an inheritance here in verse 11. We neither work for this inheritance, nor do we deserve this inheritance. We're children of God, adopted by God Almighty Himself. Referred back to that in verse 5. Right? In adoption, think about that, it's parents selecting a child to bring the child into their home, declaring that child to be a full inheritor of everything that they have. And that is what God predestined us for. Verse 11 is what it says. That's what God has sealed us for in the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. Guaranteeing a day of redemption. Rather, ceiling verse 13, right? And the blessings go on and on and on and on. And in fact, Paul knows of these tremendous blessings that come in our salvation, and he knows how big and how vast they are, that in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, I need to pray for you, that your eyes would be open to see all these things. And the implication of that is that you cannot see these things apart from God's help. You try and you try, and it's got to be God who shows you all the, the blessings. Look what he says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? In other words, the hope of your calling is so great that that God may you open it up to their eyes. 
And I'm praying that God is going to give you an understanding into the hope of your calling with which you've been called. I'm praying that God will teach you the riches that await you in the kingdom of heaven being inherited by you. You receive your inheritance from God. I'm praying that God will teach you the abounding power of God's grace in your life. And that's what chapter 2 begins with. How powerful is the redemption of God? He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. No feeling. No ability to choose morally right, to choose God. But God resurrected you. Right? We think the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is marvelous. Listen, the resurrection of everyone who believes in Christ, going from dead in sin to being alive in God in Christ, is no less miraculous. And that's the point of verse 5. Before he get there, though, he's, he's abounding the grace. God, rich in mercy, because of His great love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. This is the blessing that God has. This is the calling with which we have been called. He says there in verse 5, it's, it's by grace you're saved. And that's the thrust of verse 8 and 9. Listen, God has saved us in such a way that there is absolutely no reason for us to boast at all before God or before others. Because God has done it all. And verse 10 says, We're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, God doesn't save us by our works, but He does save us to appoint us to perform good works. Right? It's in this verse that then you get a, a sense of what chapter 4 verse 1 is talking about. Walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Right, what's your calling about? It's all about God's grace come into our lives. How might we walk appropriately before others? By living lives of grace before others. And that's what verse 2 is about, right? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. I mean, that's a life of grace, being kind and patient and gentle and forbearing with others. But we're not in verse 2 yet. We're still in, in chapter 4, verse 1. Because there's more to your calling than just what God has called you to in terms of your salvation. Right? It, the worthy walk isn't done in isolation. It's done in community. And that's where Paul picks it up in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He says, remember, you guys, you Gentiles were excluded from God, but now you've been brought in. And look at verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in Himself He might make the two, that's Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God through the cross, and by it having put to death the enmity." And He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. I mean, that's the makeup of the church. It's, it's Jews and Gentiles dwelling together in unity. As He says, a one new man. The church that wasn't there before, that, that comes there, Jew and Gentile completely together. Differing groups reconciled through the cross into one body. Verse 16. And our access to God is no different. Jews and Greeks, 
They access God the same way through the mediator, Jesus Christ. There's one foundation of the church. Chapter 2, verse 20. It's Jesus Christ Himself. These aren't two groups coexisting. This isn't a duplex. Alright? Where one family lives over here, separate house, garage, kitchen, bathrooms, and another house. Listen, no, no, no. They're together in one house, in one building, with one foundation. Two radically different people groups living in harmony with one another. And chapter 3 again picks up this theme of harmony and unity. When he speaks about the mystery that's been revealed, it's verse 6. Here it is. Here's the mystery. I'm being specific. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. And fellow partakers of the promise of Christ through the Gospel. They're fellow heirs. Right? They, they, are, they are joint heirs. What, what a Gentile receives in glory is the same thing a believing Jew receives in glory. Joint heirs. Fellow heirs. Right? Fellow members of the body. Right? There's no, no upper class citizens and lower class citizens within the church. We're all fellow members of the body. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ and the Gospel. Right? The promise to Israel is the same thing as the promise to us as well. In the Gospel of Christ, complete sins totally reconciled. That's what it is. Two groups made into one. Living in love with one another. And I just say this. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God has united the church into one new man, Jesus Christ. And that church ought to stay together. And I simply say this. A worthy walk is a unified walk. That's what he says. You need to walk worthy of your calling. What's your calling? You've been saved by unbelievable grace and you've been placed in this body of people. You need to walk in unity with them. That's what he's saying here in chapter 4, verse 1. Well, let's look at how to have a unified walk. That's verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Showing forbearance to one another in love. I'm calling this point, unity requires a lowly walk. A lowly walk. Paul raises in this verse several actions and attitudes we need to have if we're to be unified as a church. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And I've tried to summarize them all under the title of lowly. I I thought about taking humility and saying that this is the one that governs them all. I thought about taking the word love and saying this is the one that that governs them all. But really, that would give priority. And I think it's all talking about just a lowly walk. A humble walk, right? Let's spend a few moments thinking about each of these words. Humility. Humility. That's the attitude that speaks of a lowliness of mind that doesn't think highly of oneself. It's the attitude that loves to speak highly of others and praise others and, and not of yourself. Humility doesn't act selfishly, but rather regards others as more important than himself. That's humility. Humility is John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus and said what? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's humility. Gentleness. This speaks of a, an attitude of, of meekness, softness, tenderness. The gentle person is the one who speaks softly with great care and concern in his voice. Maybe some people come into your mind and say, boy, that's a gentle person. Oftentimes it comes in a soft tone, their voice. You know, this past week my family went to the hospital to visit Laura Dre, who just had a baby boy. 
And um, we told Stephanie, our two-year-old, that we we're going to go and see a newborn baby. She said, careful, careful, careful. It's, I don't know how she knew that you're supposed to be careful with a newborn baby, but you are. And that is gentle. Gentleness is treating others like a newborn baby because we're fragile. Patience. It's the next word. Patience. The attitude speaks of one who takes a long time to get angry. And that's what the Greek word fleshes out. Macrothumia. Macro means long. It's in macro. Big, big. Thumia. Passioned. Wrath. Macrothumia. A long time till wrath. The picture is someone being provoked being provoked and stirred and yet remaining calm, cool, and collected in the storm. Your patience is like an oven taking a long time to get warm. Jesus was patient on the cross, being provoked and abused and reviled. He didn't revile in return. He was patient and kind towards them. Forbearance. Anekomai. Speaks about one who endures under great pressure without breaking. The picture is one, of one standing under a load of weight, but not cracking or falling down. It's a picture of endurance, right? Picture a weightlifter with me, right? With a, with a weight above his head. And, and it's pressing down upon him. And the one who has forbearance has endurance and is holding and holding and holding for a long time. Even under tremendous weight that's trying to cause you to buckle. Forbearance is long in that. The pressure's on. People pushing in. People provoking. But forbearance endures. Love. We know about this word, right? We hear it all the time. We know what love means. It means having affection for another person. It means that your focus is on the well-being of another. Because your happiness is bound up in their happiness. So you self-sacrifice and you give to them. Uh, looking at them more important than yourself. Right? And so I ask you, do you unify the church? In order to do so, we all need to be characterized by these qualities. Being humble, right? holding others in honor, not ourselves. We need to be gentle, caring for others like we would a baby. We need to be patient, waiting a long time before being provoked. We need to be forbearing, enduring under the difficulties without breaking. We need to be loving. I mean, affection demonstrated for others. And these are the things that need to be demonstrated in our life if we are to preserve the unity of the church. And I'm just simply calling it unity requires a lowly walk. If you notice, each of these have to do with being provoked by another person and yet kind of patiently enduring it and being gentle in the midst of it. You know, not provoking, not, not attacking back, not standing up for your rights, but patiently enduring it. You know, and the book of Proverbs abounds with such wisdom. I was looking this week at Proverbs and think about these. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Contentions come in the church and someone, you know, speaks something strongly against you and you respond gently. A gentle answer and wrath is turned away. And rather than discord and strife, there is harmony. Or at least works towards harmony begins on that path. How about this? Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. Contention comes, and the one who's slow to anger 
pacifies that contention and reduces it. And when that contention is reduced, it opens the way to unity. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. It's the hatred of one another that, that stirs up strife and contention, but when there's love, love covers transgressions. Right in the pictures, there's transgression against you. But in love, you're covering it. Just saying, you know what? I'm not going to bring that up to the surface and provoke you with that. I'm just going to cover it. Right? All these things are working the same thing, right? The, the picture is this. Problems between two people. And if people are proud or quick-tempered or unloving or not patient, the tension and the difficulty will merely escalate. As Proverbs 28:25 says, the arrogant man stirs up strife. Right? The proud man who's not humble, see, stirs up strife because he wants his own way and it's him, it's his way or the highway. It's my way. And, this is my, and you're going to have strife like that. You're not going to have unity. But it's the humble who will have unity. Proverbs 29:22, An angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. There it is again, right? The angry man, right? The one who's not enduring, the one who's not humble and patient and kind and gentle is going to stir up strife. But if people are lowly and looking out for others in patience and humility and love, the tensions will die down. Proverbs 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. <laughs> so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's what it's talking about. Right? When there's a quarrel and conflict among the people of the church, you respond humbly, gently, with patience, and the water never pours out. But you stir it up and the water's going to gush out and then you're going to have a flood and then you're going to have problems. For unity, you need to have these things. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. This is a wise walk to walk with humility and gentleness. And really, I want you to think right now even about your relationships with others here in this church. Are they characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love? Maybe there's somebody in this congregation with whom you've had a disagreement. Have you had a disagreement with someone in this congregation? If not, you're new. Okay? Because you will. And that's a good thing because when, when people rub together with one another, friction will be produced. Right? And what do you do when engine pistons are going up and down? Well, what do you need there? You need oil to dissipate that heat. And what do you need in relationships? You need humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. Maybe you can think about somebody who had disagreement. Words exchanged between you. They've acted in a way to cause tension between you. They said something's been hurtful. And maybe even you've returned the favor. Perhaps it had an effect on your relationship. And whereas once you, ought to be, you used to be genuinely excited to see that individual, now you're simply cordial. See, it's a lack of unity there. When you come to church and they happen to be gone, right? Maybe a little part of you rejoices you don't have to deal with them. Such experiences, listen, they are normal for Christian relationships. But it calls us to respond in these ways. And, and I just tell you this. If there are people like that in the church, Paul calls us here in verse 3 to be diligent to preserve the unity. 
It doesn't allow for passivity. It calls for an active pursuit. It calls for going after somebody. But again, I I get ahead of myself because that's my third point and we're still in in verse 2. I simply say this in verse 2. The Ephesians needed this. The Ephesians needed this. You think about the church, how it started in Ephesus. You know, I'm going to zoom by. I've got a lot of stuff in my notes about this, but Acts 19 records the story of what happened when Paul came into Ephesus. He was in the synagogue preaching for three months. Some were persuaded and some were not persuaded. In fact, they kicked him out of the synagogue after three months when it became apparent to all what it was that he was preaching. He was preaching an end to Judaism and a start of Christianity. These Jews liked their Judaism. And so they kicked him out of the synagogue. He brought along with him some of the believing Jews and started teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Right? He went public with his church and taught there for two years. Right? Where both Jew and Greek could hear the message of the Gospel of Christ. And what took place in Ephesus is nothing short of revival. In Ephesus, there was a huge temple The temple of the goddess Artemis. And it supplied much of the wealth in Ephesus. There were people who worked in there, people who sold things in there, people who created idols to be sold in there. But then there were some idol worshippers who were used to that, that Grecian idol worship who turned to Christ and stopped their idol making and stopped their idol purchasing. And there were people who were magicians who were trained in their magic arts, who were trained in the demonic, who were trained in wicked and sorcery and all this evil. And they're converted to Christ. And there was a bonfire one day. They threw in all their books, 50,000 drachmas worth of books. It's like $5 million worth of magic books. They threw it in the fire. Flame grow up, and everybody in the town could have seen this fire and said, What's that fire about? And it would have got around. Hey, these magicians, they're burning their own books. They've turned to Christ. Quite a statement that would have been effect in the city. And it caused the idol makers then to hate the Christians in the church because it's disrupting their business. And so there's there's Paul was actually kicked out of town, I believe, and you know, contention there and strife. But now think about it. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the church in Ephesus. Jews and Greeks in the city had come to faith in Christ, but from entirely different perspectives. The Jews were trained in the ways of God from their youth. Able to quote large passages of Scripture from memory. Every Sabbath they heard the law taught and expounded. Every Sabbath they spoke and sang words of praise to God. You might equate the Jews to church kids who know nothing but the protected life in the church, which is a great blessing. So you have church kids on the one hand, and then you've got these idol-worshipping magicians on the other hand who come with a whole load of baggage. They were trained all their life up in the ways of idols and selfishness and pursuing their own pleasures. And it's me and it's the idols. And everything about their theology was wrong and their morality was equally wrong. They would have engaged in many sinful activities. You might equate these, equate these Gentiles with gang members who know nothing of the practice of righteousness. So you've got gang members and church kids coming into the church. And how do you think that worked? It's a lot harder than any 
difficulty that we have with unity at Rock Valley Bible Church. Their backgrounds are different. Perhaps they talk different, different language, different slang. Perhaps they dress different. They definitely had a, a different manner in which they were accustomed to live. Now they'd come together in the church, and the church at Ephesus must have been a, a sight to see. And I believe that these Ephesians, as they mixed and mingled with one another, would have easily provoked one another. Just by what people were doing. What they, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can do that. Oh, this is what you do. Maybe language in the process of sanctification would have been very many, many testing times. And the church at Ephesus is no different than the churches of uh, the early first century. The church in Corinth was like this. You read about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, about the sexual immorality that was existing even in the church. There would have been great tensions in the church. The church in Thessalonica would have been like this. They turned to God from their idols. The church in Sydney and Antioch would have been like this because there were Jews and Greeks mixed together. In fact, down through the ages, churches have always faced this sort of diversity to one extent or another. Some churches are more diverse than others. And with this great diversity comes a great opportunity to demonstrate humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. I simply ask you, how are you doing in seeking this unity? You know, I've quoted Joshua Harris every week. How many of you read this book? You done yet? Good. I would encourage you to. It just paints a picture of the church that I'm trying to paint for you here in these messages. He talks here about how difficult it is to live together in harmony completely. He said, I came across a book by a young Christian author who shared his story of finding God on the open road. He and a buddy packed up for a road trip and hit the highway and searched for God. His pastor at home didn't seem to understand his longings for spiritual depth, so he left everything familiar behind and headed out for adventure. It made for an interesting book. There's definitely something appealing about striking out and discovering God. It sounds spiritual and courageous, but I don't think it's what God's Word prescribes for spiritual growth. And ultimately, I don't think it's as spiritual or as courageous as it might appear. Going away is easy. Do you want to know it's harder? Do you want to know it takes more courage and what will make you grow faster than anything else? Join a local church and lay down your selfish desires by considering others more important than yourself. Humble yourself and acknowledge that you need other Christians. Invite them into your life. Stop complaining about what's wrong with the church and become a part of the solution. It's so simple and yet so life-changing. Life lived in a local church is an adventure that will lead to more joy and more spiritual depth than you can imagine. It might not make a bestseller memoir, but it's a story that God loves to read. It's a picture of what the Ephesians were called to do. It's a picture of what we are called to do. Live together in unity and harmony. And do you know that living together in unity and harmony is evangelistic? The church is evangelistic as the church just functions properly. As unity's model, the world has an opportunity to witness the transforming effect of the gospel in your life and how you deal with others. Jesus said this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, unity in the church is radical. And the world takes notice when the church genuinely loves one another. And such a love will produce a, a unity that the world can only explain as divine. I was reading recently, I, I forget where I, I read it, but I was reading about these mega churches. I'm not sure you're familiar with this, but a lot of these mega churches, you know, the, the Willow Creeks and bigger churches, they've decided to cancel church on Christmas morning. 
And uh, the reasoning is just they want to try to make it a family day and push church home. There's lots of, lots of reasonings behind that. I think it's kind of crazy, personally, myself. Of any time to be in church, wouldn't it be Christmas? If you skip church, that's okay, though. But this is where I want to be. I want to be thinking about our Savior, thinking about the birth of the Lord. And I know that many of you have been traveling and be gone, and that's okay. But it's interesting. As a secular writer wrote about this whole situation, and uh, I'm not going to get it quite right, but the writer wrote something about how, yeah, beyond the, the facade of unity in the evangelical church, look how they fight amongst one another with this issue. Because some are saying, oh, you have to have church, and some are saying, oh, you don't have to. And when the fighting started coming up, someone from the world outside looking in said, ha, look at how they fight at one another. Of course they are. I have a neighbor who... Um, Hasn't been to church in years because of uh, disunity in a church. <laughs> I don't have that. I've spoken with people before. <laughs> They're hypocrites, right? They can't get along. Church splits. I'm done with them. See, the, the, the disunity of the church does a great deal to communicate bad things to the world. But I say the unity of the church does a great deal towards communicating everything that's true about us in the gospel of Christ to the world. And in fact, God has so composed the body where Jews and Gentiles, blacks and white, rich and poor, gifted and ungifted, dwell together in unity and thereby show the power of the gospel to transform lives. But to achieve this unity, we need to have a lowly walk. Let's look at my third point. Unity requires not only a worthy walk, not only a lowly walk, but also a diligent walk. Verse 3 being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I focus your attention here upon this word, being diligent. The NIV translates this, make every effort. The King James puts it this way, endeavoring. The ESV translates it using the word eager. The New English Bible says, spare no effort. And when you see all that, you see, you get a sense of really what this word is. Pudazo. It's very difficult to translate it. It just talks about a, a conscious, persistent, consistent effort. It talks about work. It talks about labor and toil. It describes design, intent, and purpose. See, the, the unity of the church doesn't just happen. Right? Just as your children's rooms don't just happen to stay clean. So also the unity church doesn't just happen. Right? Just as dust just happens to stay off your furniture, so does unity in the church just happen. Just as snow that falls just happens to miss your sidewalk or your driveway. That's how unity happens in the church. Just as your body continues to smell nice without your shower or bath, so the church just happens to keep its unity. Paul says this here, that without a conscious effort, the unity of the church will not be preserved. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unless you think my talk here on unity is throwing doctrine out the window, please think again. I'm not saying throw doctrine out the window. In fact, doctrine is the very thing that unites us. But Paul speaks then in verses 4 through 6 of the unity that we have. There's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Right? There's one Spirit that works among us. It's the third person of the Trinity. 
We could never have unity like the Bible describes with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who deny the Trinity. It just won't happen, right? There needs to be acceptance of the Trinity, right? There's one hope of our calling, right? We hope for the glories and pleasures of heaven, right? We could never have this unity with liberals who doubt whether the promises of the Bible are really true or not. There's no unity. There's one hope, right? We're all together in this hope of our calling, right? There's one Lord. We submit ourselves to the sovereign rule and reign of our masters, Right? We couldn't have this unity we're talking about with those who believe that submission to the Lordship of Christ is optional in your salvation. We're unified because we are under one Master who Peter calls the Chief Shepherd of our souls. Bowing to Him creates the unity. There's one faith. Right? We believe in a substitutionary atonement of Christ's sacrifice. We can never have this unity when those who believe that your works help to merit your salvation. That just won't work. There is one faith that sanctifies us, that purifies us. It's in the atoning, substitutionary work of Christ. It's one baptism. Probably talking about conversion. Right? Probably talking time where the Spirit comes and creates you anew, which is symbolized in your water baptism. Right? We could never have unity among us who believe that you can be saved and then you can be lost. And then you can be saved and you can be lost. Saved and lost. There's one baptism. There's one salvation. It's one God and Father of us all. We believe in one God, not many gods. We could never have this unity with idol worshippers or with polytheists, of which there were many in Ephesus. So I'm not talking about a wishy-washy love and commitment to one another. I'm not talking about a church unity going to the lowest common denominator. But I'm talking about loving others despite our differences. And we can, as the church of Jesus Christ, have various opinions about different things. Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 14 and 15. He dealt with those who had different convictions about what was permissible to eat. And some said, no, that wasn't permissible to eat. And some said, no, you can only eat vegetables. And some said, no, you can eat meat. Some said the Sabbath day is holy. You have to keep the Sabbath day as in the Old Testament. And some say, no, you don't have to keep the Sabbath day. All days are alike. It's very interesting how Paul counseled them. You know how he counseled them? He didn't say give up your convictions. He didn't tell them, lower your standards. He didn't tell them, hey, lighten up, buddy. He didn't say, hey, you're right and you're right. No, here's what he said. He said, each of you have your conviction before the Lord. You keep your conviction, but so hold your conviction and so act in the midst of a church that you do not disrupt the unity of the church. That's what he said. And you can hold convictions about these types of things. And you can choose things for your family. You can let others choose something differently But you need to make sure that that conviction that you have isn't something that denies the unity of the church. Paul said this in Romans 14, right? This is on those debatable issues. This is on those issues that's not clear. Romans 14, verse 19. So then he said, let us pursue, go after, pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Let not food or a day Destroy the work of God. Hold your conviction, but maintain the unity of the church. And the way to do this is by keeping your walk lowly. Humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, and loving. And it takes work. It doesn't just happen. It means talking with others. It means praying for others. It means confessing sin to one another. It means serving one another. My message last week just fits right into this. It means serving and loving and helping and praying and speaking with others. Well, I want to give you a real-life example of someone who is diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And her example has been very convicting to me and encouraging. Gordy mentioned our prayer time this morning. And last Sunday, we prayed for a friend of Gordy and Ruthie's. Um, 
I've met her before. Uh, I don't know her real well, but I have. Her name is Orit. And she has an unbelievable story of her conversion to Christ. Converted here in the United States when they witnessed the amazing change of their father, of her father. This guy changed radically. If you want to talk to somebody, talk to Gordy and Ruthie and they'll tell you the story. It's an amazing story. She and her husband came over here to the United States to say, what happened to my dad? And basically spent some time, a long time, I don't know, several months maybe, debating the Bible with a Christian. And eventually they bowed the knee to Christ. She did too. Well, anyway, Ruthie shared in a prayer meeting that she was going to travel into Jordan which is a, with a handful of other women. Now, I've been to Israel. And when we went to Israel, we crossed over into Jordan. And that was a pleasurable experience, right? <laughs> that was an awful experience. And you get to Jordan and all of a sudden like, it's like, whoo, the thicket, there's air, thicket, you know, is here. It's awful. I just feel the tension there. Feel, we felt a little bit violated, actually. We can feel the, uh, the tension between Jordan and and Israel, and there's no lost love between between those two. I remember going to purchase something in Jordan, and uh, I pulled out you know my pocket, and I had a few shekels, it was Israeli money, and I tried to offer it to the cashier, and the cashier looked at me, said no, and almost like I insulted him by giving him Israeli money, because in giving him Israeli money, it would have to acknowledge that Israel is legitimate state. And that they are okay and I'll take their money. They wouldn't even just take the money and exchange it. They refused Israeli money. That's very typical of this clash between Jews and Israelis. And um, thinking about why this woman would want to go and travel into Jordan, being an Israeli, travel into Jordan, I thought, she's nuts. But then I received an email and now I understand why she went into Jordan. It was her purpose to show how unified the body of Christ was. She was diligent to demonstrate unity within the body of Christ. Listen to what she wrote. She said, Thank you, Ruthie, so much for your prayers. It made me and the other girls feel safe. And some of this translation is a little bit rough. We are thankful that God blessed this conference. We were 23 women, five Arab women from Israel, six Palestinian women from Bethlehem. The rest were Jewish women. So it was half Jewish and half Arabs. It was taking place in Jordan because the ones from Bethlehem are not allowed to get into Israel for free. We arrived to Petra, Jordan on Friday night. Saturday was a testimonies, get, getting to know each other in the Bible study. The bottom line of this day was both sides, Jewish and Palestinian are sinners. We both make mistakes. We need to realize that we are one in Christ and to love each other. And she talked about getting into Petra City and how great it was and beautiful Petra was. And Petra was beautiful. And then she said in the evening had a Bible study which I was teaching on 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Writes, love, I'm glad the women were with me and not too tired. Monday was interesting. We had started with a study and in the second session we got news from Israel. A terrorist had blown himself in Nataniah town. The woman who organized this conference is from Nataniah. Her name's Lisa, and we all worried for her family. What happened, what happened in kind of this situation is that all the lines of the phone fall because everyone tries to call the same area. We had stopped to pray, and it was moving to hear Arab-Palestinian ladies praying for Israel, for the wounded people, for the families, telling us how sorry they are of the terrorism. Lisa's family are fine, so the 
so are the Christians from her church. But five people got killed and 35 wounded. It was a weird situation sitting Jewish and Palestinian women studying together the Bible about loving each other and putting it all behind us. Our guide was a Jordanian guy. He said that for the first time he cared to hear about what happened in Israel and cared for Lisa's family. Israel. But for the first time he cared as a result of this trip. After lunch we went to the village. It was interesting to meet the Jordanian people and set in their stores. We spent four hours just in between four stores because we sat talking to them about Jordan and Israel and our conference since they couldn't understand how come the Jewish Israelis are walking together with Palestinians. Just walking down the street together is radical in that society. In the hotel, we got response of an amazing group, Arab Israelis, Arab that live in Israel, Arabs that live in Israel, and Palestinian Jewish women all together and love each other so much. One of the older Palestinian women said she, will, she never knew till now that there are Jewish Christian women. She came to me and my friend and said that now she knows that we will be with her in heaven and she is willing to die any moment. It was her way to say that she loves us. <clears throat> So also kissed us anytime. She also kissed us anytime we passed by. We were praying also for the Jordanian people that we met all around. They're all Muslims. It was interesting that though these days we didn't see even one Jordanian woman in the hotel, in the village, only men. That's their society. And so you just compound what an effort this was to take a handful of women to go in the society where women aren't even seen in public. To go and unite. For the future, we are going to be in one of the Arab villages in Galilee to celebrate Christmas in the church. We will try to get together and bring the message to the churches of being one body and both sides having one mission to bring the gospel to the non-Christians around, Jews and Muslims. God was glorified in this conference. Your prayers kept us and warmed our hearts. On the way in, I felt not comfortable. Right? But I remembered your words that God can put up a barrier between the enemy and and you as we drive for that. He can blind the eyes of those who want to harm so that they won't even see us on the road in their cars. We serve such a great God and this is an honorable trip that you're taking. Thank you for these words. It helped me so much knowing again what a great God we serve. This Israeli woman knows what it's about to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Going to great lengths so as to demonstrate the unity of the Spirit. She went out of her comfort zone. In fact, she went into danger so as to promote the unity of the Spirit. Because the unity of the body is worth it. Will you do the same? That's different for you and me. We don't face danger to preserve the unity of Rock Valley Bible Church. But maybe, just perhaps, we face something a little bit more different, difficult. Our pride our willingness to be humble and gentle and patient and forbearing and loving even to those who don't seem quite so tolerable. Now, what about Rock Valley Bible Church? Is there unity here at Rock Valley Bible Church? Let me say with you that this past year at church has been by far the most difficult year for me. I think it's been a difficult year for our church. We've had several issues raised to the surface which have divided our body. The first issue has to do with our involvement in Nepal. Steve and I returned, Steve Belanger and I returned from March for an excellent trip in Nepal. 
And um, there were those in our body who thought we shouldn't be involved in Nepal at this time. Very strongly, in fact. There were those in our body who believed very strongly we should go forward in Nepal without any reservations at all. Is that a division in the church? As a pastor, it was very difficult right, to tread the waters and really seek unity among us. But that was my vision. That was my goal. Had many conversations with people in this church. Had several meetings in the church with those who represented opposite sides on the issues. And when I believe, along with the elders at Kishwaukee Bible Church, at that time, we didn't have plurality of elders up here. They were involved in this decision. We said, you know what? We have enough unity to go forward in Nepal. And so went forward in Nepal. Bought them some land. $15,000 going forward in Nepal. Now, in doing so, you know, we thought about even supporting some pastors over there. We decided to kind of hold off on that. And in doing so, I knew some people weren't going to be satisfied. I knew there were people who said, we shouldn't be involved. What are we doing that for? And I knew the people who said, oh, we should support these pastors also. We should just keep going. And I knew that not everybody was going to be satisfied. And in fact, still some today just told me this week, why aren't you going forward in Nepal further and faster? I said, well, you know what? Because the unity of the body, we want to go at this thing together. That's why. Others still have concerns about it. Well, I'm not sure about Nepal. I'm not sure about Nepal. I'm simply saying we've charted a path of involvement in Nepal that is consistent with the Lord's leading and I believe is consistent with unity in the church, maintaining the unity. And I simply ask you to help unify the church in this regard. You can be supportive of leadership. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. But what I'm calling you to do is say, you know what, here's, here's my conviction. I think we should be going faster. You know what, but here I'm going to encourage you in this. And here we're going to go. And now, notice that that's different from saying, well, support me and what I want to see happen in Nepal. Because where the truth be known, our involvement in Nepal is different than what I want. My heart says, let's go full-fledged forward faster. I want to go. I want to spend money. I want to support pastors. I want to go. But why have I not? For the unity of the body. I've chosen to say, you know what? The path we're going, I'm comfortable with that path. And let's go there. Because I've surrounded myself with those who are far wiser at things and missions than I am. And they've seen things like this go way too fast and cause major, major problems down the road. I said, you know what? That's good wisdom. It's not necessarily what I want, but you know what? That's good wisdom. And I think the best way to unify us to go forth is just to spend some money there, get them some land. The church there in Bakunde. And we as an elder board are united in this direction in Nepal. We're praying about another trip over there as we speak. Thinking about it. Praying about it. That's one issue. Another issue arose this summer. A man was presented before you as a possible candidate to come on staff at Rock Valley Bible Church. And from my perspective, this man would have been a great help to me. His musical gifts were obvious for all. He had a heart for ministry that was, I don't want to say unsurpassed. That's pretty bold. But he did a heart for ministry. He could have freed up my time administratively to focus on more pastoral work, to which I've been called. But you know, as we work through that issue, there are differences of opinion here at Rock Valley Bible Church in this issue. And you know, I'm bringing this out because I think the best way to deal with disunity is to bring it out and say, here's where it is. There was this issue. Do we need a single man with musical abilities or do we need an older man who's been seasoned with life? That was the question. 
I had many conversations with people about this. I had many meetings with people about this issue. Leadership team received letters. We talked with people about this. And ultimately, through the leading of his heart and our heart, thinking about through the church, he determined that this wasn't the time for him to come on staff. Is that what I wanted? Not hardly. Not at all. In fact, I shed tears from this pulpit his last Sunday among us because I knew the help that he would be, especially to me. But... Why would I bend on that issue and not seek to push the issue? For the sake of unity. For the sake of unity, I've set aside my wishes. And I, I would say that the people who have counseled, it's good counsel. It's really good for us to think about, well, who else do we need to help complement my giftedness? And who else do we need to help complement my lack of giftedness? Because there certainly are lots. I see that more and more clearly every, every day. This week was a very discouraging thing to me. So I saw my lack of giftedness in the ministry this week. But you know what? I value the unity at Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm seeking to be diligent to uphold it by bending my ways. And I say, you know what? I'm totally content with the situation where it is right now. We're praying and thinking through what is wisest and what is best for Rock Valley Bible Church. And I just ask you to have the same type of attitude among issues because future issues are going to come up. And we need to go forward as a body. And I believe you know, going forward slower together is better than going faster and fractured. Say amen? Let's go forward together and slower. And you know, here's something interesting also. Had we been congregational rule, both these issues would have turned out different. And I'm confident both these issues would have turned out exactly the way that I wanted. Because I think we could have got a majority of people to vote that way. But you know what? Majority isn't what I want. I want unity. And we as elder board, we want unity in all things. And it's not just, well, whatever Steve as a pastor wants, let's just go ahead and do that. This is not it. In fact, I was even told a couple weeks ago, well, the way that the church works is you just, well, what is it that the pastor wants? Let's, let's just do what the pastor wants. <laughs> that is not the way. Rock Valley Bible Church works. In fact, you talk to Gordy and talk to Lance whether it runs what I want to have happen. Even this week, I wanted something else to happen at the Rock Valley Bible Church. And these guys said, I don't think so. So, I said, you know what? Though I'm convinced of it, I think it'd be really good. You know what? Let's just not do it. Why? Because unity is important in the church. And these aren't doctrinal issues. I mean, these aren't deciding what truth and error or right and wrong. These are preference issues. These are conviction issues. And for the sake of unity, we have pursued that. And I guess I would ask you to do the same thing. You know what? There might be things in the church that aren't quite what you like. Maybe ministries that aren't quite going just exactly what you want to go. You know, rather than bolting in, why not be supportive and helpful to say, you know what? Well, here, let's, let's just push that. Let's just fan that flame. There are people who have complaints about flocks, you know. I said, you know what? But that's where we're going and that's how we decided to shepherd. Support that and help that mission and that model. Support those. You know, it's very interesting. Now that I've been a pastor for several years, I have uh, had an interesting situation. When, I, when I've been involved in uh, like activities and I've seen somebody organize and administrate something, whether it's a soccer team, whether it's this international student thing, whether it's um, Park District, 
I have found myself, and it's not only recently until I've figured out why, I have found myself going above and beyond to encourage those people who've put in administrative time to do these things. I just said, thank you for doing this. I appreciate this program. I think it's really good. You do a wonderful job. I want to help you and support you in this. And I've done that on like different avenues. And, I, and recently I just stepped back and said, you know, why have I done that? And I know now why. Because I know how much an encouraging word helps a leader of a group of people who sometimes don't see eye to eye. And just say, you know, I thank, thank you for your work. You're doing a good job. Continue to press on. It's like, you know what? That makes a huge difference in me. And I know it makes a huge difference in other people. And I know I have become a much better follower now that I've been a leader of a church because I understand the, the difficulties of seeking to work. I understand the administrative work that goes behind it. You think Sunday morning just kind of pulls off. There's a lot of administrative work that takes place. See a simple Sunday morning like this take place. And I'm struggling with that. And I need help with that. And I see other things. I've even complimented people. It's their job to organize the Park District Soccer. I say, thank you for the work you're doing. I appreciate the phone calls. I appreciate the notes, the email, all this administration because I understand and see how difficult it is. And I just ask you as a church body, you know what, you don't have to agree on everything. I, the Rock Valley Bible Church is not going exactly where I want it to go, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that we are unified going together because I believe as we go unified together, it be far more profitable than to go fast and fractured. And I just ask you to support us in that, support the unity of the church. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner loving towards other people and walk diligently. And just let me say one, one thing. You know, this is my heart towards you who've disagreed. My heart, I have no animosity and anger towards you. I respect that. I appreciate it. Okay? And as you deal with differences, don't have, you know, rubbing anger. Just appreciate the differences and appreciate the perspectives and come in a loving, gracious, kind, humble, gentle way to say, you know what? We're just going to seek to make this work. Because that's what we're about. We're about a unified body to testify to the world of God's transforming effect in our lives. So let's pray to that end. Oh God, I know I've been long. I thank you for the patience of these dear people whom I love with all my heart want to spend the rest of my life serving and helping and building up. My goal and my desire, Lord, is to stand before you someday and tell you of all the wondrous things that you have done in this church body. Tell you of all the wondrous people that you've placed together here. The, the wondrous actions that they have showed. The great love to Christ that they have done. The, the great service in the church. How they have honored you and glorified you. And Lord, I do look forward to that final day when I can do that. And give great praise to you on behalf of the work that you've done in us. And so I thank you for Rock Valley Bible Church. And even these issues of disunity that I've brought up, they're not major issues. We have walked unified through these issues. It's not fractured the church. It's not split the church in any sense. Lord, but they are open and we speak about them and we're honest. I pray, Lord, for a heart of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love to drive us as we walk forward in the future. Indeed, I can say, behold how good and pleasant it is and brothers dwell in unity. And I just pray, Lord, your blessing upon our church that that would be where our church would dwell as a unified body going forward, worshiping our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.